Hello and welcome to the brand new series of Feels Like Healing with me, Al Lewis. Before we begin this episode, I just wanted to let you know that we're going to be doing a special live recording of Feels Like Healing on Wednesday the 25th of January at 7pm at St John's Church in Canton in Cardiff, where my panel will include the actress Hannah Daniel, the filmmaker and director Gavin Porter, and the actress and writer Caris Hilary. All three of my special guests have been impacted by grief and have used creativity as a way to help them better understand their loss. If you'd like to be in the audience for this special live recording of Feels Like Healing, you will find a link in the episode description to where you can reserve your ticket. Entry is free, and I look forward to seeing you there. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Feels Like Healing with me, Al Lewis. A podcast where I talk to artists about how creativity has helped them process their grief. The reason I'm making this podcast is because when I was 21, I lost my dad to MS. That seismic moment in my life made me decide to become a singer-songwriter. I'd been making music before that point, but never considered it a life choice or as a career. However, after the death of my dad, creativity became a solace for me, in a way I could express both my joy and my pain. It made me feel alive in the very moment when I was confronted with the ephemeral nature of life and the devastating reality of loss. So I wanted to talk to other people who've ended up in the creative world, but who've also experienced loss, to see whether they have similar stories of why they got into creativity, or whether they were already creative people and just happened to suffer grief. I hope during these conversations that I will come to better understand grief and why it makes us feel how we feel and do what we do. This is Feels Like Healing. This week, my guest on Feels Like Healing is the award-winning singer-songwriter Frank Turner. Frank has released nine studio albums, and before being a solo artist, he was in the band Million Dead. His latest album, FTHC, delves a bit more into Frank's childhood and experiences that he had growing up. I thought that would make him a perfect guest for Feels Like Healing as there's a lot of um, topics that relate to redemption and healing within those songs. Um, So thanks, Frank, for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'd like to begin by just asking you about your childhood because I, I I like to find out when people first sort of went to creativity um as a as a tool to better understand themselves so when was that for you um i mean it's an interesting question because i'm not sure that's how i would have regarded my creativity initially i was sort of a a a nerdy bookish kid um uh and then when i was about sort of 10 11 years old i stumbled across broadly speaking rock and roll um actually my first introduction was iron maiden right um and i got very into metal and then later punk. But, um, and, and, you know, and I think in a way that's just quite um, ingrained in me and, and my sisters too, um, I'm quite participatory. So it was like I heard this music I liked and it was like, cool, I want to do that too. So I got a guitar from Argos for Christmas <laughs> um, and, and started kind of getting Iron Maiden tab books and being incapable of playing anything in them and then getting Nirvana tab books and that was way better. <laughs> um, uh, and you know, so, uh, and then after that, I pretty quickly started writing songs. Um, so what age I were you st- then? 
when you were uh, writing? Kind of like 13 or so. Yeah. I was in a bedroom band with a couple of my friends growing up. But the thing about it is I, it, I regard it as almost like a categorically different from what I do now because it was quite often a case of literally just writing down four random chords and showing them to the other guys and then just kind of shouting over the top of it. And there wasn't really much sort of <laughs> finesse might be uh, a word. Um, but I mean, I'm not sure there was much kind of like emotional content either yeah. other than kind of early adolescent sort of rage, yeah. I suppose, but in a pretty unfocused way. And I'm not sure that I was understanding myself through it or indeed that anybody, including me, could understand the noises that we were making. <laughs> <clears throat> they certainly weren't very good. Um, I'll say that. But um, but I mean, you know, it, a, a bit later, sort of, an, I, I joined a more serious band or formed a more serious band called Knee Jerk when I was um, when I was about sixteen years old, and uh, I suppose at that point I started writing more kind of uh, <laughs> considerable uh, lyrics, should we say? Not 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 necessarily good, but uh, that you know they considered and considerable lyrics. And at that point in Knee Jerk, did you already have it in you that you wanted to be a musician? Was that your your goal in life? To oh be yeah, a- yeah. I wanted to be a musician from when I was, like, say, from when I was about like ten. When the first time I heard Iron Maiden, it was like I want to do that. Um, I'm actually wearing an Iron Maiden jacket as I talk to you now. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the, but it's it's funny because like there was there's different levels of of that kind of ambition, that life goal, if you like, because being an eleven or twelve year old going, oh, I'm going to be in a band is quite sort of vague, should we say? It's yeah. not really sort of rooted in much realistic appraisal of what that might involve on no, any exactly. level. Um, uh, and then, you know, in my mid to late teens and early 20s, I went through a long period of time being involved in the in the kind of DIY hardcore scene, which I loved and um, which was a really useful kind of uh, introduction to the world of being a musician but it was quite rejectionist you know there was certainly a period of time in my life when i thought that the idea of signing a record deal was like anathema um and probably that playing in a venue with a stage was selling out or something like this <laughs> um and, and so on and so forth and it was only i guess what i'm saying is it was only over quite a long period of time that what it realistically meant to actually make a living in a long-term way as a musician what that might actually involve uh, and then to actually do it was another thing as well at this beginning period now when you're starting out as a songwriter you said you sort of you weren't really sure if you were if people were understanding what you were trying to convey or you yourself were understanding was there was there already an, an idea of what you wanted to convey about yourself or about life or were you shrouding yourself in metaphors yeah, I mean a little. Um, I mean, but not on that that first band. I mean, I think we should probably count that out of this discussion. To be honest with the um, the knee jerk stuff, like I mean, there was a fair degree of kind of uh, politics in there, right? Um, in in a pretty ill formed and adolescent kind of way, but I was broadly speaking angry about where I'd found myself when I blinked into some basic form of social and political consciousness um you know i was sent to a boarding school when i was eight years old and i didn't quite twig what that meant when i was eight i mean it was a very traumatic experience but you don't you know and then uh and then i got into my kind of um middle teens and i discovered the clash and propaganda and mikhail bakunin (laughs) and all that sort of business and i was sort of generally furious about that 
do you think that mu- the music for you was it was it escapism then because i find talking to different songwriters it's like it's either music is a route out of what they're experiencing or it's a route to better understand what they're experiencing so was it a bit of both for I, you i or? think at that point it was definitely the the former yeah. you know it was but i mean you know but both in terms of like losing myself in um the music and I was very interested in loud and heavy music and there's something very kind of physically all encompassing about playing in a in a hardcore band you know or going to see hardcore and punk and metal shows and stuff it's quite um it blocks the world out pretty effectively because it's so yeah. loud and I and I enjoyed that and and the physicality of the mosh pit which particularly appealed because it requires no skill as a dancer you just <laughs> run around and push people which yeah. worked for me. Um, so yeah, there was a, and, and, but I mean, there was a physical sense of escapism because once I was about fifteen, I basically started kind of, not quite absconding from school, but just jumping the train every weekend, which you weren't supposed to do, and going to London and staying on the friends' floors or staying at squats and going to punk shows, going to anarchist book fairs, all that kind of business every weekend, um, and I sort of absented myself from school as much as i could both mentally all the time and physically <laughs> at the weekends, yeah, the weekends. Um, and, and and music was a big part of that and my band started playing some shows around that time we did our first tour in the summer of 1998 and um <clears throat> you know so there was a there was a physical sense of escapism i suppose there I, I, although i would say that at the time in that adolescent way in that way that adolescents are quite often sort of obsessed with the with that quite um, such an idea of authenticity I would have regarded it as a flight from something unreal towards the real yeah. um, uh, I suspect that uh, Sartre was generally full of shit actually these days <laughs> um, and that the idea of authenticity is spectacularly adolescent as a value anyway um, uh, but any, anyway and, and, and who fucking knows but at the time yeah I mean I, I would have regarded it it was escape, but perhaps not escapism in mm. the way that I looked at it. It was a way to get into something else, you know? And if we look at your latest album, your ninth album, and I read in an interview you did with the NME that you mentioned how the subjects that you're covering here in this album, you wouldn't have been able to talk about maybe a few years ago. No. And um, I just wondered, at what point in your life did you decide to confront these things like you just mentioned you know the fact you went to boarding school at eight and the trauma of that and your difficult relationship with your dad and all these things what what, sure. what point did that did was the, what was the well, tipping point i guess so i mean to to do some fast forwarding here like um <laughs> i was in that band knee for a while that broke up i was in a band called million dead and which was a kind of it's a band i'm very very proud of but the kind of and I kind of co-wrote the music in that band and I wrote all the lyrics and the lyrics of that band were kind of aggressive and absurdist but generally hyper-intellectualised and quite political very political actually Were um, they personal or were they, were they more uh, in, in places but generally speaking it was more it was a more focused and more more informed kind of anger at the world I suppose and, but also with a sense of humour about itself I like to think um <laughs> <laughs> Am I right about that? Um, but uh, but you know that that was a thing. But there was there was a big sense for me. There was this huge turning point in my experience as a writer <clears throat> when I was in my kind of early twenties, and I was touring a million dead and, and touring in a hardcore band, playing with other hardcore bands, listening to hardcore music, and it was all well and good. And socially, um, 
I ended up hanging out at a bar in Northumberland called Nambuka that was run by uh, a kind of a little budding scene of kind of like indie folk musicians. Um, uh, the, it was mainly run by two guys, Dave and Jay, and Jay continues to write songs as Beans on Toast oh, yeah, these days. Yeah. Uh, Dave was the drummer in the Holloways. But, you know, Jamie T, Laura Marling, Marcus Bumford, uh, Justin with the Vaccines, all these people were kind of part of that milieu mm-hmm. at that time. Um, and it was pretty eye-opening for me, particularly Jay, who remains one of my best friends. You know, I was in the middle of trying to write long, complicated song, songs that were analogies about Polish reform communism. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> um, and, uh, and Jay had three chords um, and told a story about what happened last weekend. And it was personal and it was funny and it was true and it was moving and it was just like oh okay well that's another thing that you can do with songs and that sort of chimed with me kind of because my parents don't listen to any kind of modern music and I got into punk and metal first metal and then punk first in my early 20s I discovered you know I mean literally like the Beatles Bob Dylan Springsteen (laughs) um, country music Motown like it was all news to me um, and that, that's pretty. That's a pretty rich diet. Uh, yeah, that's pretty intense. Across. Yeah, you know, and 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 I think, despite the fact that obviously I had been writing songs in one form or another for quite a while prior to that, it was around that period of time that I started thinking of songwriting as a activity divorced from genre, I suppose, um, and as a creative endeavor in and of itself. And and then to go to what we're talking about as a way possibly of kind of parsing the world around me and myself as well um and so my kind of set of influences if you like shifted pretty dramatically at that point and i developed a taste for the confessional yeah. should we say yeah um and and that's the big that's that's when i sort of almost come blinking into this conversation <laughs> and i mean obviously there's a big gap still like you say between that introduction to all this type of contemporary popular sure. music to FTHC in 2022. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. What, well, okay, so, so, I mean, what I would say is that, like, so I started kind of writing about, writing more personal songs, and, like, mm. as a listener, I adore that moment in music where somebody says something that's unretractable, you know, I always have, and so, so something that, you know, and, and like, I, my older sister listened to a lot of Count and Crows when I was a kid, and I've mm. always adored their music, and, mm-hmm. but, you know, getting into Towns Van Zandt and getting into... Um, Aidan Moffat from Arab Strap was a mm-hmm. huge, huge influence on me. And that kind of like totally like almost like joyous self-evisceration that people that some of those writers engage in. So I started kind of writing like that. A lot of my early records kind of engaged with that kind of idea. Um, and, uh, you know, I, did, I made a record called Tape Deck Heart that was successful, that was mm-hmm. kind of a prolonged breakup record that was very, very kind of... Um, self-excoriating or at least again that was the intention um, and then and then I kind of moved away from that for a couple of records and the interesting thing for me about FTHC was coming back to that approach when I was slightly older mm. um, and in a different place and one of the kind of secret influences on FTHC is my 40th birthday um, uh, <laughs> should we say you know and getting older is sort of generally awful but um, <laughs> one of the sort of consolations is is a slightly greater sense of 
surety and who mm. you are and where you stand or at least that's been my experience of it yeah did that give you the confidence therefore to to open up a bit more about your past is that was that the the key 100 percent. i mean i was able to kind of like probe the foundations a little deeper mm. because i felt like i was standing on sure ground at this point i mean it doesn't hurt that like i have sort of been engaged in therapy as a concept for the last few years yeah um and uh, it turns out there's an awful lot of shit under the rug um yeah. uh, um, yeah, being older definitely helps. Because, uh, you know, listening to your back catalogue, I think there is a, like you say, a, a pointer towards there being this this thing that is gnawing away at you, but maybe not a, a specific articulation of what that thing was, but which has now come out in this album. Mm. And I lost my dad when I was 21. He had a, a, the disease at multiple sclerosis. And um, it's taken me till now to sort of really focus in and... and ruminate about what effect that had on me and and to write songs about it has been a a real healing process and so I wonder if you found that in in opening up in these collection of songs did it did it provide you with some sort of solace that you didn't really perhaps think you needed in in places yes and I mean one of the more rewarding or at least interesting moments in songwriting for me is when you figure out what you think about something in the process Mm -hmm. of writing you know I think a lot of people think that you kind of you have a feeling and then you put it down in song and it's not always quite that the sort of the the line of causality isn't that smooth you know and sometimes you start to write about something and something comes out and you go huh I didn't realize I thought (laughs) that Um, yeah you know but also, I mean, there's a degree to which things can be aspirational, you know. Um, emotionally, I think, you know, there's a song in the New Yorker called Miranda that's about my dad being mm-hmm. transgender. Um, and it's a very kind of warm and positive song. Yeah. That, it, in all, in 100% honesty, there's a degree of aspiration. Certainly when I wrote that song, I wasn't, I'm not 100% sure I can say with all honesty that we were quite there. Yeah in that place when I wrote the song. And and ultimately, you know, we're still a parent and a child and there was an awful lot of really, really terrible things that happened that I don't, I can't just sort of wish away. Father's called Miranda these days She's a proud transgender woman And my resentment has started to fade Cause it was never about who she was Just the way that he behaved And now my father is Miranda And we're okay At the same time, you know, it's an, it's an immeasurably better set of circumstances now. And, you know, there, I do feel like that a fair bit of the time. And was that a conscious decision by you to make Miranda positive and joyous? You know, as a songwriter, yeah, yeah, were, you, were you looking to create that? As, as a feeling, as, as you're saying, that's what you were hoping for in your relationship? Yeah, I think uh, definitely. And I think for my own benefit and perhaps for Miranda's as well, 
I wanted to kind of... There's another song on the record called Fatherless, which mm-hmm. is about <laughs> everything prior. Yeah. Which is <clears throat> more aggressive mm. and more um, furious, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and it, and it felt to me that those two songs are kind of yin and yang, yeah. whatever. You know, they're, yeah. they're the, the positive and negative poles of a certain situation and thankfully there is a linear kind of timeline between the two and it's definitely heading in the right direction but um you know we still have plenty that we can get into an argument about let's say that so a song like fatherless where you're really opening up about your childhood is that is that cathartic for you now to have that out there in the world it is um yeah and uh you know the very much so i mean it it's a funny old thing because catharsis and vulnerability are two sides of the same coin Mm. in the sense that I stand on a stage and sing that song and part of me feels like I'm expelling my demons part of me feels like I'm totally opening myself up Mm -hmm. and being vulnerable in a way that is pretty intimidating sometimes and um so, so yeah, it, it is cathartic, but it can also be terrifying. I was just saying, how is that process? Because I'm intrigued, because these songs I've written now about my dad, I haven't yet performed them live. So I, I'm intrigued to know from you, like, what is it, how does it feel to open up on stage these, um, these bare naked songs? Uh, it, it can be scary. I mean, mm. <clears throat> personally, I find myself, there's a physicality to the act of performance for me. Mm-hmm. The the mechanics of playing and I sing very loudly and always have done. <laughs> Sound guys everywhere shudder at my approach, um, uh, and you know it, it requires all of the muscles of my upper body for me to sing, and um, and and that's quite good at sort of like taking me out of other considerations. Yeah, and I definitely think that like in many ways. As a writer and as a performer, it's really important to block out other people's considerations. Um, the only honest o- audience a writer has is their own best judgment, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah. And I think that if you're writing to please somebody else, I mean, I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm old enough now to not be like, then you're a sellout. But it's like you're doing <laughs> something slightly different to what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. So, so therefore, you have to almost like actively find ways of. Because it's human to think, what's someone going to think about this? Are people going to like this? Blah, blah, blah. Are people going to be offended by it? Whatever it might be. You have to find ways of getting rid of those ideas when you're writing, I I think. Yeah. Um, and then when you're recording and then when you're performing. Um, and that's, you know, that's a process. But like I say, I mean, for me, just the fact of actually, I, I, I find it... I tend to kind of lose myself when I'm playing anyway. And then there's a song like A Wave Across the Bay. How do you deal with the subject of suicide in particular when it's a close friend of yours scott hutchinson from the band frightened rabbit how do you go about broaching a subject like Mm. that knowing that not only do you have to think about yourself but also the loved ones that he left behind who might be listening to this song i i am a resolute atheist rationalist type of person but i um not long after scott passed away had an extremely lucid dream in which uh scott came and sat at the end of my bed and played me a couple of chords and threw me a couple of lines of uh, words. And I um, wrote them down. I woke up at four in the morning and wrote all of this down. My wife remembers this part of it. <laughs> um, and, uh, <clears throat> it, you know, it's, I'm not going to say, and that was the whole song, but it was yeah, yeah. two-thirds of it. Yeah. And, um, and I tried quite hard not to 
not to mess with it beyond that point, but just to flesh it out. And so I don't feel any, like, I, I have no worry about whether or not Scott would like that song because in a roundabout way, I feel like he was part of its creation. Certainly on the more conscious level, like its arrangement is very consciously an attempt to pay tribute to his yeah. musicality. I spoke with Scott last night. I was tired, but I wasn't sleeping. And despite what you think, I wasn't drinking. I was just finally ready to listen. And he was there all right. And though he'd probably kill me just for saying this, given how the both of us are atheists, there it is. There must have been a moment just before you hit the water when you were filled with a sense of peace and understanding. With the wind in your hair and the light in your eyes as you realized you were finally escaping. Somehow in that moment you miraculously miss it like a wave across a bay never breaking. And that's how I like to think of you. Ever falling, never landing, rolling slowly out to sea and always smiling. You're always smiling. I, I went to Grant, who's Scott's brother, and I said, look, man, I've written this song and it's not, it's, it's, it doesn't fuck around that song. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's yeah. a very um, raw set of imagery. Um, and you know, I was confident in, it in a song, but it's like I'm there's no universe I'm going to put that out if Scott's parents or Scott's family or whatever had an issue with it. So yeah. I sent Grant the song, and he sent me the most delightful reply. He just said, He said, I can't listen to it all the way through, but he said, mm. As a band, Frightened Rabbit is a band, and Scott's a writer, we dealt in emotionally visceral music, and it would be kind of ridiculous for me to. Um, object to someone else doing the same thing yeah. under our influence so he said have at it and we made it a benefit for the charity in the end there was a huge issue with that song and with many songs including Miranda actually with other people's privacy should we say um, which is the thing we haven't talked about yet I mean like you know I finished song Miranda and before releasing it to the world it wasn't just that I had to check that Miranda was okay with that song going out. I had to check whether my mum was okay with that song going out, and my sisters. <clears throat> because it's... I have the right to reveal whatever the hell I want about myself. And how, how were they about it? Because I feel the same about my mum, like, asking her about... My, how... my mum was actually pretty... It took her a while to come to terms with it, because the story of what happened with my dad and my parents involves a lot of, a lot of trauma for her. Mm. Um, and in a way that's not necessarily hugely recognised currently in the in the public conversation mm. about um, trans rights and that kind of thing, which I find interesting, personally. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, she... Eventually she said, look, I respect you, your art and, indeed, your right to talk about your own experiences. But it was not a simple, that's fine situation. Yeah. Do you feel like now, um, you, as you look towards your 10th album... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, are these subjects going to be ones that crop up again or do you feel like these issues have been dealt with in the songwriting that you've done so far or do you think that there is a well there that you still need to go to um, I think that 
<clears throat> I mean, the first thing to say is that I try not to write in a pre-directed way. Um, and in, at the moment, I'm going through a phase, which I always go through, which is that, like, there's, def there's some stuff is bubbling away and, and little lines come out here and there. But I haven't, like, finished that many songs lately, but I'm going to mm. go home for this tour and I've got a feeling I'm going to finish quite a few in a short period of time, which is a cool feeling. Fingers crossed. Uh, <laughs> that's that always that the happens. worry, isn't it? Is that you'll never finish or never even complete another song. That's always the worry. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, there's a whenever I finish a record, I feel like it's the only time I feel at peace because it's like all the ideas are out. I get hit by yeah. a bus now, and it wouldn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but so there's a bunch of stuff kind of bubbling away. I doubt I'm, not, I'm probably not going to write another specific song about Scott or my dad like mm. immediately because I feel like I have written songs about that recently and I am at pains as a writer not to directly repeat myself. I mean, that's for other people to judge whether or not I have actually <laughs> done that. But, um, but, but in terms of, I do feel like uh, I have some issues with, uh, I have quite a severe issue with disassociation, which is to do with the fact that I, it feels like pretty much everything in my life prior to about five years ago happened to somebody else. And, and um, that's the right. thing that I'm kind of exploring at the minute. Well, that seems like a really interesting subject for songwriting. This podcast is about the how creativity can be used as a tool to sort of heal and to better understand ourselves. Do you, do you still feel like songwriting for you ticks those boxes? Is it still the thing you go to? A hundred percent for me. Um, I mean, there is an argument to be made that large swathes of my songwriting have constituted a quite a public form of therapy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I only hope that everybody on the receiving end is aware of what they signed up for, <laughs> you know. Um, and I've written about myself at length, and there are days when I wonder whether that's just the most supreme act of narcissism. <laughs> you know, who knows? But... but um, but yes, definitely, I make sense of the world around me and, and, and everything else through songwriting. Not everybody does. I'm not sure that Antikidis does, uh, to pick a random example. Yeah. Um, but, but whatever. I mean, he can write whatever songs he wants. Um, like, you know, for me, that is very much uh, the major role that songwriting plays in my life is as a form of kind of self-examination and self-understanding. And I suppose, is there an element as well of trying to reach out and find commonality with other people who might be going through the same thing? Yeah, very much so. I mean, that's, that's what... It, it's, the, it's the golden prize of songwriting that, irritatingly, you can't aim directly for because it becomes a sats immediately. It's <laughs> to write something that's ultra-personal that then connects with other people. Mm. It, I, I always think that if you try and do that, you end up writing Angels by Robbie Williams, which <laughs> I'll, I'll be right. I mean, it's, it's, a good, it's a good song for what it is, don't get me wrong. But... Um, <laughs> You know, and every time, and, and like, and, and it's confusing as well because, like, I have a song on called Plain Sailing Weather, which is it, to sum it up in a sentence, it's about me being an arsehole. And if I play that song, it's a reasonably popular song in my catalogue. And I'm like, <laughs> is it popular because people empathize or because they agree, which are two separate things? Um, but you know, it's quite weird to play that song in front of a crowd full of people singing it along, uh, and singing along with it. It's just like. Hmm. Maybe it's because um, we all feel like an arsehole from day to day, Frank, maybe. Yeah, yeah. totally. Or maybe everybody <laughs> just thinks I'm an arsehole. And uh, like, finally, someone said it. <laughs> well, on that, on that beautiful note, Frank, why don't we just leave, <laughs> leave it there? <laughs>
um, thank you for your time and um, thank you for your time and thank you for your honesty and being open about what can be very difficult subjects to talk about and I, and I commend you and thank you for being an open songwriter who can pave the way for others so thank you thank you man that's very kind of you to say thank you for having me alright take care man cheers all the best Frank's new album FTHC is out now and for more information about his music head to his website frank-turner.com Information about the songs that I used in this episode are available in the description. Make sure that you rate and subscribe to this podcast as it will help to spread the word about Feels Like Healing. Thanks for listening.